0: And when you leave people naked and alone without a moral landscape, they try to find one and they find it in politics. Normal societies have what I call redistributive politics. We argue about tax rates and where we should spend money. But lonely societies and socially ill societies have the politics of recognition. Everybody's hungry to be affirmed. They're hungry for heroes who will shame and humiliate the other side. And so politics seems to offer them a moral landscape. Us good guys on this side, those bad guys on the other side. This recognition politics seems to offer a sense of moral action. I do good not when I sit with a widow or feed the hungry. I do good when I hate the other side. And so to me, people have turned to politics to fill the moral vacuum that the rest of culture has created. And of course, it doesn't work. Politics doesn't really give you communities. You're just a bunch of co-belligerents. It doesn't really lend you to do the things that make you generous. It just envelops you in this culture war. And so, to me, we should care about the fragmentation of society because it rises up and leads to the diseased politics all around us. And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk.
1: Over the course of the last four weeks, I have shared with you the intellectual origins of the identity synthesis, of the new ideas about race gender and sexual orientation would have become so influential in the western world. But until now we have only arrived at about 2010 to the moment when these ideas were very influential in universities but very marginal to society as a whole. In fact, Kimberly Crenshaw in the early 2010s In a retrospective, about 30 years of critical race theory said, it's been a very successful research program. We have always influence in universities. But in the wider world, our ideas are destined, are sure to be ignored. And yet, by 2020, Coca-Cola was holding trainings for its employees, teaching them how to be less white. The ideas of the identity synthesis had become deeply influential, not just on college campuses, but in nonprofits, in the corporate sector, even in politics and the White House. How did that happen? How did these ideas escape campus? That is the question that I try to answer in the second part of the book. And the first step in this has to do with social media, but in perhaps a more surprising way than might immediately be obvious. The story starts on social media platforms that are now widely forgotten, like Tumblr, which allowed its mostly teenage users to tag themselves and to find others according to identity labels they were creating at the time. Before that, in high school, you might identify by some identity group, but you had to have a pretty high percentage of a population sharing that identity Label, Because you needed actual physical people in your environment to validate you, to share that identity. Now you could find people all around the world who might share that newly invented identity in order to get the kind of minimum number to have some form of validation of the ground. And once you had this platform in which people defined by themselves, by this plethora of identities, you needed an ideology to hold this together, an ideology about how not to offend each other, how to defer to each other, how to validate each other's senses of identity. And here is where a kind of popularized version of the identity synthesis really started to emerge. This found its written form. On platforms like Ford Catalog, which allowed people to publish whatever they wished and had one important subsection, which helped this kind of identity synthesis crystallize in its popularized form. I first encountered it in websites like on everydayfeminism.com, which in early 2015 would run articles like four Fords for your yoga teacher who thinks appropriation is fun. Or people of color can't cure your racism, but here are five things you can do instead. Or so you're a breast man, here are three reasons that could be sexist. At that point, there was another crucial development with social media. And that's that even when Vox.com was founded in 2013, most of his views came from the website. People would go to Vox.com and they needed most of the articles there to be of interest to them. Otherwise, they might not come back. By about 2015, most of the articles that people read came through social media networks. And that meant that these kinds of places, including Vox, could focus on articles that were of great interest to Asian Americans or to vegans or to people with particular sexual identity groups. And these articles would then spread like wildfire on social media. You no longer had to cater to a broad readership on the website. Finally, With the rise of digital, with the tremendous economic pressure that mainstream newspapers and other publications were under, they quickly embraced the most successful writers in this identitarian mold. And even before Donald Trump was elected in 2016, the key concepts Of the identity synthesis, including buzzwords like microaggression and white privilege, were mentioned many, many, many more times in the pages of those state traditional newspapers than they had been at the beginning of the decade. A popularized form of the identity synthesis had escaped the lab and gone viral on the internet. My guest today is David Brooks. David, of course, is a columnist at the New York Times, and he is the author of a lot of really interesting books, from Bobos in Paradise to the forthcoming How to Know a Person. We talked about the breadth of David's career and his interests, about what the Bobo is and whether America's elite today is still an elite-governed in many ways, by the Bobo sensibility, about the passing of the old WASP elite, about how to think about the role of moral character in human society, about how to inspire more social connection and counteract the epidemic of loneliness we have in the United States today, and finally, about our respective interpretations of liberalism, about the extent to which liberalism needs to be tempered by conservatism in the way that David puts it, or whether excesses of liberalism can be reined in by the right interpretation, by the right understanding of what liberalism actually consists in, as I ended up arguing. David
0: Brooks, welcome to the podcast. Great to be with you. I'm a longtime listener and admirer.
1: Likewise, I had a great realization a few years ago. I lived in Paris in 2006 for the first time, and I've been back Regularly since, and in a way that predated my re understanding or knowing much about the American public sphere. And so I always heard this term, bobo, te bobo, le bobo, which is an acronym for. Uh, Bourgeois Bohemian. And I always thought that was sort of an old French concept. And when I, you know, realized that you had written a book called Bobos in Paradise, I assumed that like me, you had imbibed this concept in France and then somehow applied it to America. And I have to say I was genuinely shocked to realize that you're in fact the originator of this concept. So how did you come up with this concept, which is hard to describe to non-French speaking audience? To what extent it's just a standard part of a French vocabulary, of a French way of thinking about this particular kind of social category.
0: Yeah, I'm like Engelbert Humperdick. I'm bigger in France than I am at home. And so when that book came out, it had this big impact in France. And French Vogue wanted to take a picture of me naked in a bathtub full of milk, which I said no to. (laughs) And Le Monde wrote a front page editorial saying, it's a French concept, not an American concept. It stands for Bolshevik Bonapartiste. But Le Bobo has carried on in France in the way it is on the margins here. And it came about because I went to high school in a town called Wayne, Pennsylvania, which is 13 miles west of Philadelphia. And it's part of the old main line where the old wasp elite used to live. And in the early 90s, I spent five years living in Europe. And I came back to a culture that was utterly transformed. The old wasp clothing stores, which were, you know, check pants and duck ties, had been replaced by the flagship store of a store now pretty famous called Anthropology, And you had all these nubby fabrics and you had fancy coffee shops. And so what I saw was the replacement of one old elite, which was based on bloodlines, with the new old elite, which combined 60s values and 90s monies. In other words, bohemian values with bourgeois aspirations. And so they had created this code of financial correctness, ways to spend money to show you reject money and material things. It's bad to spend money on a yacht, but you can spend $90,000 on an Augusto over a sub-zero refrigerator because zero wouldn't be cold enough. The story was about the replacement of one elite Based on money and blood, with another lead based on education.
1: There's a part of that book that I quote in a chapter of my new book that ended up not making the cut. I ended up cutting the whole chapter about the sort of difference in the description of people in the mergers and acquisitions page of the New York Times, otherwise known as the weddings page, and the kind of way in which people signified social class in the 1950s through lineage and membership in social clubs and where in the South you had your debut ball and so on, to the time you were writing this book, which you described very memorably as Harvard meets Dartmouth, MBA meets MFA, and, and and so on and so forth. I'm struck by the extent to which the old WASP elite has died and nobody has noticed. I find it hard right now to think of a most senior WASP government official, of the most famous WASP in our cultural life if you take a very broad understanding of somebody who's white, Anglo-Saxon, and Protestant, there's some of them, for even then a lot fewer than there used to be. But if you take any kind of description of WASPs as they themselves would sort have of recognized it a number of decades ago as being descended from one of the kind of Brahmin families in the American Northeast with mainline religious convictions, they've actually really passed from dominance of our public life without much trace and without many people noticing it.
0: Yeah, it is astonishing. I guess when you think of Al Gore running against George W. Bush, Would have been the last election where you had two really old money families running against each other. If you go back a decade or two earlier, you get Avril Harriman and John McCoy and all those guys. They're really very dominant. And basically, what happened was that it was a class that more or less committed suicide. And for some good, admirable reasons, they decided we can't be a a country educating the dunderheaded sons of rich men. We need to open up Harvard, Yale, Princeton, and places like that to a new group of people. And so within a decade, the median SAT score at Harvard rose from about 550 to about 680 or 690. And if you or dad had gone to Harvard in 1950, you had a 90% chance of getting in. And now we still have legacy admissions, but it's nothing like that. And and so the educational institutions basically decided we can't win the Cold War with a bunch of characters out of F. Scott Fitzgerald novels.
1: So to go back to the Bourbons for a moment, I mean, if we think of the old-fashioned bourgeois is somebody who's proud to be part of an establishment, who thinks it's in certain ways the ancestral right to be part of that establishment, who perhaps has a sense of noblesse oblige, who perhaps has a sense that there are certain moral responsibilities that come with it, that would have been true to varying extents, and who therefore also is willing to spend money in a somewhat ostentatious way because that's part of their social position. And then you have these new bourgeois, the sort of new version of a bourgeois who may be structurally in the same position, who's a partner at a law firm or or a partner at a management consultancy firm or who has the sort of white-collar managerial position in a Fortune 500 company and so on. How have they evolved over the couple of decades since your book was published? What does the Bobo of today look like? What role do they play? Has that changed in these two decades?
0: Yeah, I should say, first, I would never want to go back to the Protestant establishment. It wasn't great for Jews and anybody who wasn't white male Protestant. I have a sentence in Bobo's in Paradise, which came out in 2000, where I said, we're the most open class. All you have to do is get into a good school, work hard, succeed in the meritocracy, and you can get in. And that turned out to be one of the most naive sentences I've ever written, because our class has basically done what every other elite class has done, which is to build up walls around ourselves and protect our own status. And so now, as you know, we basically, we marry each other, highly educated people. We invest enormous amounts of money in our children. Those children go to the same small number of elite schools. They marry each other. Then they congregate in New York, D.C., Denver, Los Angeles, San Francisco, where most of the wealth is now created in this society. And they not only control the guiding heights of the media and the guiding heights of the university, but the entire what Jonathan Rauch calls the epistemic regime. they decide, if you're going to be recognized in society, it's usually members of this cultural class that recognize you. and if you're unrecognized, it's because members of our class do not recognize you. And so we have become an inherited Brahmin class. And that's bad enough, but I think the cultural fault that our class suffers from is just a tremendous amount of bad faith. The old Protestant establishment for whatever their vices and there were many at least recognized they didn't deserve their success, the best of them, that they'd inherited by some freakish chance and they had to give it back in some way and be responsible in some way. And so the halls of Harvard are filled with their uh, there's a memorial hall where the names of the Harvard men who died in the Civil War or the World War I particularly are inscripted. And by the time Vietnam comes along, Harvard is not adding many names to the halls, the names of the dead, because they get to escape service in Vietnam and it's high school kids who get to do that. And so we didn't feel some sense of responsibility to sacrifice for larger good. And I would say we have a trouble, if I had to indict my class and my culture, we have a trouble thinking outside our class. And so understanding how other people see us, understanding how they might be thinking differently, understanding the effect our cultural power has upon them.
1: Yeah, and I'm not ultimately convinced by some of the recent critiques of meritocracy. I think spending some time in a place like Italy, which is really not sufficiently meritocratic, makes you very aware of what a blessing it is to have systems that do encourage people to put a lot of effort into certain forms of work and where they have a sense that if they really excel at a certain form of work, they'll have some form of remuneration for it. But the element of a critique of meritocracy that I buy is that the sort of self-conception of the people who are in charge now makes them feel like they deserve all the blessings they have because they have those blessings, because they are the most high-achieving, because they are the smartest, because they had the best SATs, because they went to the best colleges. And that sort of lack of uh, recognition for the kind of privilege they enjoy is particularly strong in that class today.
0: Yeah, I believe in at the core in the meritocracy. I believe in magnet high schools, Stuyvesant High School, and Thomas Jefferson in D.C. I, I believe uh, in selective colleges, and I think our university systems are by and large pretty amazing. But the history of the meritocracy is the history of debates about what merit is. And you would say in the Protestant establishment, the definition of merit was being clubbable. Do you fit in with all us other wasps? We. Created a meritocracy based to me on highly partial and dubious criteria. First, IQ. Second, are you able to effectively suck up to adults between the ages of 18 and 22? So, my students, I taught at Yale for 20 years off and on, my students were phenomenal at sucking up to me. They were awesome at it. They had this ability to. Be buddy-buddy with me in a cool way, while at the same time being insanely deferential and making me feel really good. And that was a skill that they learned. I quote in a piece on The Atlantic, How the Brabos Broke America, a book about, I think it's St. Paul's or St. George's, one of the prep schools. And he said what he teaches, what the students learn at that school is ease. The ability to walk into any room in any circumstance and basically know how to handle it. And that is a skill we've taught, but it's not really the important things in life. And in my view, because of the rise of populism, because of artificial intelligence, because of the Cold War with China, because of the end of affirmative action, now is the time to redefine merit and to redefine in a broader term so we don't just build an exclusive society based on who got to go to competitive colleges at age 19. We want a society in which a wider set of virtues are, are acknowledged. And I don't know the answer to that, what the new definition of the meritocracy is, but it's something I think about a lot these days.
1: Yeah, and I've come to have these deeply ambivalent feelings about our universities. I, I'm very lucky that I got to go to a campus university as an undergrad in Cambridge and spent a lot of my time there beyond as a PhD student and later a faculty member. But I'm also more and more concerned about how it creates this sort of social class that really is quite apart from the rest of the population, right? I mean, not only... As you're pointing out, most of the people who now join these universities have parents who you know, are broadly speaking part of the same social class, but even some of the members who aren't members uh, of that social class, who really come from quite ordinary backgrounds or perhaps generally disadvantaged backgrounds, since the age of 17 or 18 are only around those other elites and then moved to the same neighborhoods and into the same professions. And by the time they really have power and influence in the world, they are quite separate from the rest of the population and build that separate cultures. Is the culture of a Bobo today the culture of that uh, ruling segment of a large part of America? And this obviously it's a big and varied country and there's different kinds of ruling elites, different kinds of ruling segments, including conservative ones or uh, purely financial ones and so on. But in terms of this sort of people who run everything from the big newspapers and magazines to the important think tanks to the universities to even in many important ways, the large corporations. Has the Bobo now turned into a CEO, into a university president and so on? Or do you think that there is additional elements to that culture? How would you describe that ruling culture of mainstream institutions in America today? Yeah, I think
0: to a large degree. I mean, Michael Lind said it's like a candelabra. If you can go up the stem, if you can get into these elite schools, then you can then branch out and you 'll have access to a wide array of institutions, whether it 's law firms, consulting firms, media firms, and so my beloved paper, my employer, The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, there was a 2018 study that suggested more than fifty percent of the writers went to a small number of like twenty six elite schools, and so that 's just disproportionate. I, I started out in journalism there were still guys there who'd never been to college. It was still somewhat of a working class profession, but that is no longer true. And then you go to tech. It's the same group of people who went to the same schools and were classmates with each other. You go to increasingly corporations. Corporations used to be, you went to Big Ten, you went to Ohio State, and that was the place you went. But now even corporations have turned into much more drawn from the elite. Beyond that, there are whole new professions that have been created with awesome economic power, which really are the cognitive elite. And and uh, those would be in particular hedge funds and private equity and venture capital. And so now corporate power in this country is less in the boardrooms and more in VC and private equity. And those are people who are simply armed with amazing brain power, and they take over companies, buy them, sell them, strip them, whatever they do. And so what you see is... It's not just economic power, it's cultural power, it's social power. Really, I keep coming back to this French intellectual, Pierre Bourdieu, who said that a class difference is not just about economics. It's about cultural capital, about social capital. It's, it's the ways you can show yourself off, the words you can drop, the musical tastes you have. And in all these ways, I do think we are becoming bifurcated. The Atlantic Monthly writer Amanda Ripley did a report on a survey of where are people most insular in this country, most unlikely to come into people unlike themselves. And the number one county was the county around Boston, Massachusetts. And there was another book of sociology, who are the most insulated people? And it is indeed people in our upper middle class sector. I mean, it's very easy to live where I live in D.C. or live in Brooklyn And really never come across Trump voters. And I have a pet peeve among a lot of my colleagues in journalism who write about Trump voters showing but never quote them like they've never interviewed them. Uh, It's just not the way we're supposed to do our profession.
1: One thing I wonder about is the relationship between the Bobo and a different kind of social category that has various labels attached to it, but none of them sound neutral, all of them sound sort of polemical, that, you know, the person who's animated by social justice or the person who's quote-unquote woke. Because it seems to me that in a certain kind of sense, those people are often part of the same social class, in a certain kind of sense, part of the people who we would have called Bobo 20 years ago and who are still perhaps in some important ways Bobo today. You might now say have embraced certain aspects of woke ideology, but in different ways they perhaps stand in conflict with each other or perhaps the relationship is a causal one where because the Bobo had this sort of complicated relationship to the fact that they had become the establishment, that they're sort of ironic about their own position in uh, society, they were not able to resist some of these ideas. They were not able to sort of stand up for what were considered to be their values when were swept along with it. But how do you think about the relationship between the sort of sociological category of a bobo and the perhaps usually speaking more ideological category of somebody who embraces what I tend to call the identity synthesis?
0: I'm planning someday to write an article called The Rise of the Wobos, which is the rise of the woke bourgeoisie. (laughs) And so I I guess the story I tell, I I could tell a lot of stories and I don't have a high degree of confidence in any of them, but the story I'll tell is that the boomer Bobos rose up, dominated all these institutions and created a series of rebellions against them. And some of it was just the straight up working class populists who said those, that top 20% has too much power screw them, I'm voting for Donald Trump. The second rebellion was uh, there's a, I don't know who came up with this term but it's a European term, the BUBARS the bourgeois barbarians and those are the rich guys who are Tudor pro-Trumpy or pro-Orban or pro-Le Pen those are the people on the Trump regattas so they happen to be economically well off but they're offended by the Bob and they adopt opposite social manners. But then I think there was a genuine re- rebellion among the young who said, "You guys are elite. You're not even very competent. You did the financial crisis. You started the war in Iraq. And then you created a world in uh, which the cost of education and housing has gone up so much. My opportunities are have been destroyed. And you." pretend to be for all this social justice, but that's just a cover for your own success. And so what I would call the younger, more people into identity politics and woke really are a rebellion against their parents to some degree and for some good reasons. I do think they still are the young identity politics. I don't want to use the word wokesters. I do think they still are a member of the educated class and do all sorts of cultural signaling. To use words like cisgender and problematic and intersectional, you've got to have cultural capital coming out of your ears to, to use those words. And so I do think they suffer from some of the same sins as, as my generation suffered from. And that as time has gone by, they have become less transgressive, and they've gone more into HR departments and corporations, they become university administrators. And as they've marched through the institutions, I do think they're becoming more co-opted by the institutions and becoming a less virulent or less ideologically pure version of their former selves. And that what happened to the Boba, you know, in the 1960s, we started with the war in Vietnam or the protests against the war in Vietnam, and we ended up with Whole Foods. And I think we'll start out with some of the, probably some of the excesses of what the right calls wokeism, but we'll end up with something much more moderate. And I think that's already beginning to happen.
1: I'm hopeful that something like that might happen. I think part of it is being able to push against it, right? And the difference between the student movement in the 1960s and some of this movement now is that, you know, you go back to the student movement in the 1960s, it was fighting for some important things that I think have improved society and also some absolutely terrible, deeply misguided things. But they were up against an establishment that was willing to defend the institutions. And part of that contest became that uh, I don't want to be uh, too sort of Panglossian about it, but broadly speaking, some of the bad ideas ended up being Resisted and some of the good ideas turned out to have such force that they couldn't be resisted. And slowly, sometimes through explicit victories and sometimes through generational change and more oblique forms of transformation, they ended up taking place. And so you end up with, for example, much more sexual liberation over time without embracing as some students who marched down the streets of Munich in the high school that I was at decades later, you know, called Ho Ho, ho Chi Minh Che Guevara Linen, right? I guess my concern today is that so far there has been, for a variety of reasons, relatively little pushback against some of these ideas. And I think that's partially because uh, the establishment is less self-confident than it was, doesn't think of itself as an establishment for the reasons we've chronicled. It's partially because there's a very genuine threat of, of Donald Trump. And so, A lot of people on the left for the last years have felt that to sort of criticize any kinds of ideas on the left is to somehow be a traitor or somehow be a secret ally of Donald Trump's. And perhaps that serious engagement is now starting and perhaps that'll produce the same outcome. But I guess so far in this deeply polarized environment, I worry that that's not happening and that in fact sort of a lot of people have fallen foul to such a degree of what Emily Offey has called 180ism, of embracing the opposite of whatever Tucker Carlson said yesterday, that it's easy to push them into positions that are themselves simplistic, because if you say the exact opposite of something that's stupid and simplistic and irresponsible, you'll end up in a position that's probably a little bit better, but that is quite simplistic and black and white in its own right.
0: Yeah, I'm hopeful that a community of genuine liberals are emerging. You know, I think persuasion, I would say, is part of that. Maybe what Barry Weiss is doing. I, I hope. When your new book comes out, The Identity Trap, very curious to see the reaction, how much vitriol and how much appreciation. And I think you've stood up in, in this book. You really take this vast, vague thing we think of as identity politics and you show the intellectual history and what it intellectually is in a very respectful way. And I, I think you're going to be surprised by how hungry people are for this. Another example. So Richard Reeves is a friend of mine who wrote a book called The Boys and Men. And he had, two three years ago, he had real trouble getting a publisher to take that book. It was published eventually by Brookings Press, his then-employer. But when the book came out, it was widely praised and well-regarded. And he, he was saying that boys are really struggling here. And he was expecting pushback from feminists saying, no, women are the problem; boys are the oppressors. And it didn't happen. And so... I hope I'm part of it. I hope many of the columnists in the New York Times, the Washington Post are part of this defense of liberal pluralism, but that's not necessarily Trumpy and it's not lying down. And I would say, you know, one thing, I am I work in the New York Times, I work at the Atlantic, I used to teach at Yale, I work at PBS. If there's one thing I'm an expert in, it's sort of upscale progressive institutions. Like, this, this is my turf. And I have to say, I think the turf is much better than it was two years ago. There's much more room for debate. The Chicago principles are embraced by many schools, sometimes to the letter and sometimes just in spirit. To me, the health of the society depends on a lot of the institutions to which you were very early in creating, which I would say are, you could be center left, center right, or it doesn't even matter as long as you're for genuine liberal pluralism. And I, I think there's really a constellation of those institutions by now.
1: Yeah. And to be clear, I don't sound overly pessimistic. I certainly think that two or three years ago, There was a period of real loss of faith that these institutions had in the values that had animated them for a long time. And there was genuine stories of people being unable to express even moderate critiques of those ideas and sometimes being punished in in really quite outrageous ways when they did genuinely or in the perception of others critique some of these ideas. And I think now many of those excesses have been rolled back and there is a much more open moment Of discussion about these ideas. At the same time, I think we've started to institutionalize some more moderate forms of these ideas in somewhat unthinking ways. The time when some poor schoolgirl in Utah was piled upon by tens of thousands of people online for wearing, you know, I believe a kimono to her high school graduation has passed. But the sort of implicit prohibitions on portraying characters that are of a different race or on perpetuating different forms of so-called cultural appropriation have also been just sort of imbibed by establishment institutions to a larger extent than they might have been a few years ago. And so that's why I guess my sense is that this is going to be an ongoing contestation. But I agree with you, an ongoing contestation in which those of us who are trying to articulate a liberal vision for how to take injustice seriously and how to be upfront about the ways in which Our society and others have fallen deeply short, painfully short of our ideals, but in which we also want to insist on the idea that individual freedom and collective self-determination and political equality remain the most promising avenues towards making that progress. I think that space has organized itself much more than it was five years ago, and that's going to make a lasting difference as well. How do you think that plays out? What do you think those institutions in which you're expert will look like 20 years from today?
0: Yeah, I just have confidence in the power of liberal Ideas. I mean, you know, for example, you mentioned in your forthcoming book, the idea of standpoint epistemology, the idea that what you believe depends on what group you're from and or the idea that if you're very different from me, I can't really understand you. I can never really get your experience. And I have a book coming out in October called How to Know a Person, which is really meant as a volley against those two ideas. Core of the book is that the key to any successful organization, family or country is the ability to see others deeply and be deeply seen. And I do think it is genuinely possible to have conversations across difference. And of course, I'm never totally going to get what it's like to be a young Hispanic immigrant woman. I'm never totally going to get what it's like to be an older unemployed guy who's been a rabid Trump supporter. But I found in my career as a journalist that through conversation, we really can communicate real understanding of our point of view from other. And that liberal democracy is not really about voting. It is on the surface but deep down, liberal democracy is based on a view of human nature and that humans have dignity because each person creates their point of view out of their experience and their reflection, their thought. And those points of view are going to differ one from another. And that it's our moral obligation and our pleasure, because it's fun, to let my point of view clash up against your point of view in conversation. And so I, I do think the most fun way to live is to find somebody you don't agree with and just say, Where are you coming from? What am I missing? How do you see this? That's just a fun conversation to have. And we're unskilled on how to do it. But I think if we are armed with the skills of how to be a good listener, how to be a good conversationalist, what questions do I ask? How should I understand how your ancestry contributes to how you see the world? How do I sit with your pain? If we become skilled at those social skills, those qualities, then we can have a genuinely pluralistic society again.
1: Yeah, I agree with you. And I think that's one of the strange things about this moment where in some intellectual corners it's come to be the rigor to assume that we can't achieve those forms of mutual understanding and that political solidarity should be based on deferring to each other rather than coming to have at least a common vision of what is unjust and perhaps a common vision of what we want to build and at the same time in terms of our social reality i think we're closer to many of those forms of genuine friendship and intimacy than we have been at previous moments in American history. Social environments, including elite social environments in particular, have become much more diverse. And of course, the number of people who are in romantic relationships with people who come from different kinds of ethnic, cultural, religious groups is much higher than it was at any previous juncture in American history. And both of those things, I think, should give us some amount of real hope. I want to touch on a different strain of your work. In books, starting with The Social Animal, but going all the way to some of your most recent work and, and your forthcoming book, you operate at the intersection, I guess I would say, of thinking about psychology and social science and emphasizing the importance of things like character. Before we discuss some of those particular arguments, I would love to hear in your words what you think makes that lane distinctive. What drew you to That form of inquiry and what do you think we can gain from it that's missing in many conversations where people aren't drawing on those sets of concerns and uh, those sources of insight?
0: First, I think my favorite period in American nonfiction writing is the period between 1955 and 1965, when you had all sorts of people like Jane Jacobs and Reinhold Niebuhr, Abraham Joshua Heschel, Irving Kristol, David Reisman. And these people were writing big books. They were a little higher than journalism, but not quite as specialized as academics. And these are like the death and life of great American cities. Reinhold Niebuhr wrote a book called The Nature and Destiny of Man, which covers a lot of ground. But they had explicitly moral visions. And Reinhold Niebuhr, like Walter Lippmann or like Isaiah Berlin, believed that history is fundamentally driven by ideas and culture, which I believe, And that we all live in a moral ecology, which is either helps, makes it easier for us to be good or makes it harder. That's the world I grew up in just journalistically. And I would say as over the last 20 or 30 years, it's not that we've gotten worse, but we've gotten less morally articulate. And some of that is measured even in what words gets used. As you probably know, Google Ngrams measure what words get used in books, and so the usage of the word goodness or courage or empathy or humility, the usage of those words has dropped by like 60 or 70 percent. We're just not talking about this stuff. And I taught these classes at Yale, and my students were phenomenal students, as you can imagine. And they were very articulate on career, but they were not articulate on how to develop their own soul and how to develop their own character, how to lead fulfilling lives. And so I wrote this book about the road to character Which starts with this dualism between the resume virtues, the things that make you good at your job and the eulogy virtues, how you become honest, courageous, capable of great love. And I said, everyone knows the eulogy virtues are more important, but we don't spend as much time talking about them. And so I mostly as a effort at self growth and like, I'm like most writers, we work out our stuff in public and I wanted to become a better person, a more emotionally open person, a more reliable person. And so I wondered, how do you, how do we build a moral order? in which it's easier to be good. And so I wrote The Road to Character, which is about seven people who were pathetic at age 20, and it became kind of amazing at age 70. And those are people like Dorothy Day and Francis Perkins, A. Philip Randolph. And so I just wanted to see how moral formation happened. And then I wrote a book called The Second Mountain, which is about how do you learn from suffering? How do you cast aside some of the egotistical desires we have early in life to lead a more other-centered life? And this book is really informed by how to know a person is informed by Iris Murdoch. And Iris Murdoch says, most immoral thing we do is see other people in self-serving ways. We see those as, as objects to be used. And that the most moral thing you can do is cast a just and loving attention on others. It's the very act of casting a just and loving attention is how we grow. And knowing how to treat people considerately in the concrete circumstances of life. And so... I'm sure I've slipped over many times into piety and self-righteousness, but we're over-politicized and under-moralized. And so I found myself in the secular sermon business, just exploring moral formation, what it looks like to try to become a better person.
1: I find this really interesting for a number of reasons. One of them is just how allergic many members of the kind of broader Bobo culture are to the suggestion that these moral character virtues are important. It's not just that they disagree with it, but there's something about it which inspires a very particular kind of uh, rage and condescension. And I guess I find it culturally interesting to try and put my finger as to why. Your colleague and I believe your friend David French... And I are part of a sort of same conference that we've gone to a couple of times a year for a while. And I believe it was David who pointed out that this is a conference that takes place in nice resorts and with as much alcohol as you like and everybody is away from their spouses. But actually it's a very, you know, everybody has one and a half drinks and goes to sleep at eleven fifteen p.m. And so far as I can tell, there was never any hint of an affair among any of the participants of this Conference And what David said, this is a place where there's both sort of liberals and social conservatives for everybody is sort of uh, on the other side of Donald Trump. So in the important partisan sense, we are both on the same side of a debate. But he would say, look, if social conservatives like myself, David says, would stand up here and say, I'll tell you a sermon about how you should live and how you're going to have a fulfilled life and... Part of that is to have a certain amount of continence, that you don't drink too much, and part of it is that you shouldn't cheat on your spouse, and part of it is getting married, and those kinds of things. The liberal members of his conference would get very angry at me, they would really disagree and say, "David, we love you, but stop haranguing us about this stuff." But in fact, that is how they live. And he then says, back in the years where he would used to go to CPAC, in fact, there'd be people, you know, at the bar at two AM, completely drunk, hitting on each other. So I guess what is it about the people who, in fact, follow a lot of the kinds of advice that you give in these books, who in some sense clearly agree with you, that makes them allergic to those suggestions, What makes them think that we really shouldn't be talking about this stuff. I think,
0: first of all, that a lot of people see their role as advanced figures, enlightened figures in society, to be in rebellion against those puritanical, self-righteous, moralist forces who didn't like masturbation you know, and stuff like that. or And they associate anybody who talks from a moral platform as just trying to destroy fun. And a lot of that is learned. There were a lot of people in, in the 20th century and in centuries before who really were primish, ugly, cold, and used morality as a weapon to shame and destroy. And so I, I understand that rebellion. My counter-argument would be we've we've rebelled against it, but we haven't replaced it with anything. And we've created a moral vacuum. And worse, we've created a sense that other-centeredness, that radical self-giving, which is what most religions counsel for, is unrealistic and impossible. And that there really aren't people who are doing anything but out for themselves. And I can tell you, I started this little nonprofit a few years ago called Weave, where we would go around from community to community and say, who's trusted here? And we Spent, I spent several years with people who work with the homeless, people who work with the poor, people who work with LGBTQ kids who've been attacked in their homes. And I was surrounded by people who are driven by a moral motivation, who live lives of beautiful, self-sacrificial love. And so how can we be a little more like that? And so when I talk about morality, I don't talk about adultery and sex and uh, don't drink too much. I'll let other people do that. I say, listen, we, we're we all egotistical, we're all somewhat selfish. How can we live in a way that's a little less selfish? How can we structure our world? And to me, moral formation is one, helping us restrain our selfishness. Two, helping us identify a purpose in life so we know what our life is ultimately about. And three, communicating the social skills so you know how to ask for forgiveness and offer forgiveness. You know how to break up with somebody without destroying their heart. And these are moral and social skills. I don't need to crusade against drink and sin and shame. What I try to do is just say, here's practical ways. If you're going to find your purpose in life, here's how to do it. Here's how other people have done it. If you have a friend who's depressed and you don't know what to say to them, here's how you can try to show up for them. I'm not in the moral morality business of crusading against some other group of people. I'm like just trying to be a teacher. I take what I've learned from people who are more morally educated than I am, and I try to pass it along. I do think we need that. And I will tell you, you know, my books on Bobo's sold okay, and it was a successful book, and I'm proud of it. But my last three books on these moral subjects, The Road to Character, The Second Mountain, and, and Social Animal, they've sold 10 times as much as that has, and that's not necessarily because they're better. I just think there's a yearning hunger for, you know, how can I find meaning and purpose in life? And and this last book, usually my readers mirror the, readers of the book-buying audience. they are 60-40 women men. This last book, which is about some of my own failure and how I've what I've tried to learn from it, I would look down the book signing lines, and I'd see eight guys and then a woman, nine guys and a woman. And there's a lot of male loneliness out there. There's a lot of people who are successful in their businesses, but who are lost inside and very sad. And I realized I could start a business as a CEO whisperer, because there are all these CEOs who, who are, are lonely and they have nobody to talk to. And they have no clue how to find meaning, especially outside their work. And I, I'm not, it's really not better than anybody else. I, I write these books on trying to be other-centered. And then when I'm book tour, I look at my damn Amazon ranking every hour to see how I'm doing. So it's like, I'm not trying to say that I, I have achieved mastery. But somewhere I ran across this phrase, writers are beggars who tell other beggars where they found bread. So if I spend, I don't have a job, but to read these books, I read books by Parker Palmer, by Dorothy Day, by, by Michael Walzer, by Iris Murdoch, and if I find something that helps me, I pass it along. That's my job. It's not Einstein here. I just pass along things that I found helpful.
1: That's a beautiful description of a writer. I'll remember that. You know, I really fought when there was this big debate about the rise of Jordan Peterson, who now appears to have well and truly gone beyond the hill. But I always sort of felt that instead of being angry at him or at some of the things that he said that one can have disagreements with, we broadly in the mainstream or in the moderate space or whatever you want to call it, should be angry at ourselves. Because I think the principal reason for his success is that there wasn't anybody offering guidance and advice To young men in particular, uh, and in particular to young men who don't come from elite families, who don't come from upper middle class families, um, who come from sometimes perhaps more dysfunctional social backgrounds and so on. And to be clear, I wasn't sort of suggesting that we should be moralizing about adultery or something like that. There was just a sort of stand-in for the way in which the broader social class of successful members of the upper middle class in the United States lives in reality according to all kinds of forms of self-regulation that help to make them successful and that help to give them connection. And then sort of when somebody talks about those and sort of explains what they are and encourages people to embrace them, the person who talks about that and encourages that is somehow middle-brow at best and a charlatan at worst. And I think there's something very odd about that self-denial.
0: There is the talk left, think, live right, phenomenon. None of us would ever like impose a rule, you have to get married before having kids anymore. We wouldn't want to judge people. But members of the educated class, less than 10% of kids born to college-educated parents are born out of wedlock, where 80% of kids born to High school educated kids are born out of wedlock. So there's a rule we follow, but we will not talk about. And so if you have resources, you can somehow survive and have an intact marriage. But if you have a lot of stress in your life and you can't find a, a maid and you're under tremendous economic stress, then they are having kids outside of marriage. And so we're imposing upon them a set of situations where it just becomes a lot harder for their kids because they have one parent around. But we would never want to talk about that. And so that, somehow finding a way to square that circle seems to me very important.
1: One of the things you started to touch on a few minutes ago was the role of loneliness in our society today. You know, these truly shocking statistics about how many American adults and how many American men in particular don't have any close friends don't have anybody who they feel actually knows them in any kind of profound way. Why should we worry about that? And perhaps more importantly, how did it get there? Why does America feel so atomized today in these ways?
0: Well, this is what my next book is designed to counter, give people the social skills so they won't be so lonely. There are a lot of stories one could tell about where we got here. And one of them would be the social media story. It's driving us all crazy. One would be the Bowling Alone story that Robert Putnam tells. We, we're not in community organizations. One would be the decline of religious faith. And we're not in churches and synagogues and mosques anymore. One would be the diversity story. We've become just a much more diverse society. And we have trouble crossing boundaries. One would be the economic story, widening inequality. And I agree with all those stories. But the story I tell in, in a recent Atlantic piece called How We Got So Mean is basically, as we've been saying, it's a moral institution story. That the world used to be filled with institutions that taught you the social skills. And some of them were schools, like schools used to have the thrift club and the courtesy club. There was a guy at the school who said, headmaster said, my job is to turn out young boys who are acceptable at a dance, invaluable at a shipwreck. And so he's talking about character formation. And so society was filled with these institutions from left and right, from secular to religious, from the days of our founders. Our founders knew that human beings are wonderfully made, but also deeply broken. And they had the sense if we're going to build a democracy out of these people, we have to do a lot of moral formation. And that lasted for about 150 years. And then... After World War II, a whole group of thinkers said, no, we're not deeply broken. We're actually quite good. Human nature is really good. And the problem is the institutions. The problem is authority. We need to liberate people from authority so they can self-actualize themselves. And so you get... Carl Rogers, the self-esteem psychologist, you get Abraham Maslow, that the idea that self-actualization is the key to self. And so we have a very individualistic moral sense that to be moral, you break free from everything around you and just be true to yourself. I think that's just a wrong formula. I think people who are trying to be true to themselves become very touchy about themselves. They don't know who they they are, that we live our best lives. We're, We're embedded in institutions, embedded in relationships. And so, if you think you're good, then you don't need moral formation. You're, you are just turn inward, and I think that's what happened. And so, not only socially and politically, but we became highly individualistic and autonomy-oriented. And when you leave people naked and alone, without a moral landscape, they try to find one, and they find it in politics. In normal societies have what I call redistributive politics. We argue about tax rates and where we should spend money. But lonely societies and socially ill societies have the politics of recognition. Everybody's hungry to be affirmed. They're hungry for heroes who will shame and humiliate the other side. And so politics seems to offer them a moral landscape. Us good guys on this side, those bad guys on the other side. This recognition politics seems to offer a sense of moral action. I do good not when I sit with a widow or feed the hungry. I do good when I hate the other side or when I'm infuriated about the other side. And so to me people have turned to politics to fill the moral vacuum that the rest of culture has created and of course it doesn't work politics doesn't really give you community it's you're just a bunch of co-belligerents it doesn't really lend you to do the things that make you generous it just envelops you in this culture war and so to me we should care about the fragmentation of society because it rises up and leads to the diseased politics all around us.
1: I find that very compelling, I have to say. I had Sam Harris on the podcast a while ago, and I think he's a really insightful thinker and was a great episode of a podcast. One of the things that we may have disagreed about is that he believes that religion was, on the whole, a negative force for society. And even though I'm not religious myself, I've started to really worry about the way in which People who don't have a church to go to, who don't have a social connection that comes from it, and as well as the stable theology, are much more likely to turn bitter and angry and lonely and become attracted to people like Donald Trump, are much more angry for that matter to embrace the kind of conspiracy theorizing of a QAnon or other kinds of movements like that. So the importance of that social fabric, I think, is really fundamental. If listeners recognize some of that. I think my understanding of the data is that highly educated people and people who are professionally successful, and I think that the audience of this podcast skews in that direction, tend to actually in some ways have more rather than fewer of these social connections. But if listeners to this podcast feel like that, that they don't have enough of those meaningful human connections in their lives, or that they are profoundly lonely in, in some kind of way, what advice do you give them about how to change that. One way to change that might be to, you know, move to a village in Italy or Greece where you can't walk 17 meters without encountering your neighbors and where the geography and the topography of the places forces you into social connection. But assuming that they can't do that, that they continue to live in an American suburb or in a giant city in America and the kinds of places where those forms of sociability aren't naturally built in. How can they transform their personal lives to make them more connected and more meaningful and less lonely?
0: I would say, first, you can move to such places in this country. I, when I founded Weave, we traveled around the country, and one of the things I would say to people is, you know, one of our problems is we don't know the, our immediate neighbors, the people who live in the homes right near us. And I said that to a group in New Orleans, and they all looked at me funny, and like, like, what are you talking about? We all know our neighbors. And so that, that's part of it. I have a friend here where I'm sitting in D.C., and she says, I practice aggressive friendship. I'm the person on the block who organizes the picnics, who organizes the parties. And so that's a small thing you can do. But I will say of these weavers, these community leaders, they just assumed responsibility for something in their neighborhood. And usually it was geographic. There's too many homeless. There are too many vacant lots. And a woman named Aisha Butler in Chicago, too many vacant lots. And she organized a little group to clean them up. Whatever the problem in your community is. And you get involved in that. And pretty soon you will be surrounded by relationships. (laughs) And I found these weavers really, they were exhausted a lot of the time because they had taken on a lot of obligations, but they knew why they were put on this earth. Their life had a clear sense of purpose, that I'm here to help guys who've come back with PTSD. I'm here to help kids who have nothing to do in the afternoons, so why play with them? And so they had moral purpose. They had moral motivation. They knew why they were put on this earth. They were enmeshed in a series of deep relationships. And I found, you know, my view of culture change is that Culture changes when a small group of people find a better way to live and the rest of us copy them. And I'll just say, in my life, I was completely bereft for a couple of years of of that kind of relationship. I was like a lot of people. I was was lonely. And I got helped out. I got invited to a couple's house in D.C. who had a kid in the D.C. public schools who had a friend who didn't have a place to sleep or eat. And so they invited him to stay with him. And then that kid had a friend and that kid had a friend. And when I got to dinner there, there were 40 kids around the table and 14 sleeping bags in the basement. And it was exhausting to be one of the adults in this community. But we had dinner once a week. We bought them bikes when they needed it. We took them on vacation. We celebrated holidays together. It was a beautiful community. The kids have grown up now and spread around. But for a little while there, it was really a beautiful community. And it was I'm still not the saint and stuff like that. So it's possible to find a place of need and fill it. And all you need is some technology of convening. Some people have a bike club. Some people have dinners every night. Some people have a monthly meeting. But it is some sort of technology of convening, so you're getting together again and again with the same people who are different than you. And it's doable in every community in America.
1: So let me abuse of your time by making you my personal counselor. I'm very lucky, and generally it's one of the great joys of my life, but I do have strong human connections, and I have friendships of many years standing that are very meaningful to me and by people who certainly I do feel know me in a significant way and would be there for me in an hour of need as I would be for them. My problem is that because I've moved around a lot between countries and continents, between cities within the United States, I don't feel that I have a place with that kind of community, right? My community is all virtual, it is. I see my friends, I make an effort to see them as much as I can and I do spend some good amount of time with them over the course of a year, but there's not one place where I can be and feel like here's this community of people to which I'm deeply connected. So is that sustainable? Do I need to just plonk down somewhere and say, here I will be for the next 20 years and I'll build that kind of in-person community? How do you think about sort of the way in which, again, I think many of the kinds of people who are likely to listen to this podcast and probably you and me are torn between those things because we are probably went to college somewhere else from where we grew up. And then we probably went to live somewhere else from where we went to college. And we might be open to moving for a certain kind of professional opportunity. Certainly if you're in academia, you don't have a lot of locational choice. And that's true of other kinds of professions in the United States as well. So how does place and the relentless mobility of a lot of upper middle class people play into this picture?
0: I could advise you if I knew how to advise myself. <laughs> I suffer from the exact same thing. I'm speaking to you from a neighborhood where I live, Capitol Hill in Washington, DC. If anybody's goes to the US Capitol and goes a little further east. And it looks like a great community. It's got a little lot of little low low town homes, all densely populated. We've got a wonderful place called Eastern Market. But we're also busy. We don't see each other. And plus we're selective about our friends. We have a lot of friends like you, but it's not just the random person has to be nearby. They're disproportionately in media or the academy or something like that. So I find out people like myself and people in jobs like mine. And I travel a lot. So, you know, as a writer and reporter, you're always on the move. I will say I no longer have a local rooted place. I think it's a problem. I feel the lack every day. And I run into people. I was with somebody a couple of years ago, who he got on the square. He was in Youngstown, Ohio. He got on the town square and held up a sign, defend Youngstown. And like his love is Youngstown. I have another friend who was a neuroscientist at Johns Hopkins, very well-educated person, was going to go to work at NIH. And she decided there are too many lonely boys in Baltimore And she created an organization called Thread, which is to surround those young boys and girls with volunteers who are basically extended family. And she wears a map of Baltimore around her necklace. And she's been asked to take her program to other parts of the country, and she refuses. She says, no, Baltimore, I'm here in Baltimore. And I think there's real virtue to that, and I, I haven't succeeded in doing it, but I do think geography matters an awful lot. There's just no getting around it. That people unite around common loves and what we love generally are our kids and our place. If you're not rooted in a geographic space, you have to work extra hard to get yourself pinned down because you, you've got to find some other source of love to organize this community around.
1: There's one last topic I want to broach with you, which is your somewhat ambivalent relationship to liberalism. You're a defender of liberalism, as you said earlier, your philosophical liberalism. But you also worry that some core liberal principles taken to the extreme could undermine our society in ways that perhaps we can see from some of the conversations we've had. You know, in one recent article you worry about how some forms of legislation about assisted suicide can actually undermine us. I think this is somewhere where I'm sympathetic to you and certainly sympathetic in your criticism of a certain kind of rationalism, of which some philosophical liberals are guilty, but in which I ultimately might have a philosophical disagreement, where I'm not sure that rightly understood liberalism pushes us to this position. So if you don't mind, tell us the exact nature of your criticism of liberalism. Is it that a lot of philosophical liberals are prone to falling in those pitfalls, or is it that there's something about the actual constitutive principles of liberalism that can guide us towards those mistakes?
0: Yeah. I mean, you know, I I used to be pretty conservative, worked the Wall Street Journal editorial page, National Review, all that. And I went and I've drifted left, uh, part because of Donald Trump, but in part, my views have changed on lots of things. But so I went back and reread all the books that turned me into a conservative. The Quest for Community by Robert Nisbet, uh, Edmund Burke, Irving Berlin, uh, Isaiah Berlin, not Irving Berlin. And I reread them all, and I loved them. And I realized I'm still that perky and conservative at my core. And one of the conservative insights is that liberal institutions depend on pre-liberal institutions. That if we're going to make a society built on individual choice, it has to be embedded in relationships that precede choice. And these are things like family, maybe faith, but certainly flag. My love of America is not a choice I made. It's so deeply in me that I couldn't shake it if I ever wanted to. It's it's pre-liberal in that sense. It's I'm not going to wake up one day and say I don't love America or I don't love my family or don't love certain things. And so I think that's a genuine conservative instinct. And that reason, and Roger, conservative philosopher Roger Scruton used to make this case, reason relies upon institutions that precede reason. And these are our attachments, our traditions, the things we've inherited that we may not even be conscious of. And so in that piece in The Atlantic on Assisted Suicide, I tried to distinguish between individual rights liberalism, which I think is the narrow version, uh, versus gifts-based liberalism. The acknowledgement that we've inherited gifts from our ancestors that we didn't choose and our obligation is to pass down those gifts. And I think John Stuart Mill was a gift based liberal. He was not amoral. He definitely believed we inherit certain attachments that precede choice. And I think his v- original vision of liberalism has become thin, in part because of the economic libertarianism of the right and the social libertarianism of the left, in part because we've confused individual uh, liberalism with maximum autonomy and individualism. And when you take individualism to the extreme, it seems like you're going liberal, but you end up undermining liberalism because you're undermining the institutions and the conditions and the permanent attachments that a liberal polity rests upon.
1: Interesting. I think that helps me think through where we agree in where we disagree. And I think we agree on the most more important thing, which is sort of a substantive account of what a good society looks like and what the role of political principles would be within it. I think perhaps we have a mild disagreement about what the true nature of liberalism is. For as you yourself said, people like John Stuart Mill actually have that more tolerant understanding of liberalism that perhaps some people have have now gotten away from. So I guess to delve into it, I would say that, yes, there are some philosophical liberals who misunderstand the tradition and who basically conflate it with a set of ideas about how to live in which you should be maximally self-creating, maximally autonomous, in which somehow, you know, leaving your hometown in order to go and, pursue a career in the arts in New York City and experiment with the way you live is being more of a liberal, is living a better or truer, more autonomous life than staying in your community and continuing to draw on and to perpetuate the kind of ties, uh, the kind of networks into which you were born. I guess I never thought of liberalism in exactly those terms, right? I think liberalism is the set of political and moral precepts that tell us that in a thriving, democracy, both of those things are going to be happening. That some people will make that choice to leave their hometown and go and lead these lives of radical experimentation and they should have a right to do that. And in fact, it will enrich our polity. But other people will make the choice to say, hey, I'm not just a patriot and that's important to me, just as other people have a right to say that it's not that important to me to be a patriot. But I will remain a member of my faith, I will live close to my parents for all of my life, I will give great importance to family and so on, and that too will enrich our polity in other kinds of ways. And so I guess perhaps ultimately it's an academic distinction between whether we're talking here about two different strands of liberalism and we would share a preference for one of the stance over another, or as I would prefer to put it as sort of one thing that really is rooted in a rich and broad liberal tradition And another view, which I think is just a kind of misinterpretation of what liberalism is. But perhaps that ends up being a a distinction without a difference.
0: Let me throw different options in front of you. And these come out of that piece on assisted suicide. One vision is I control myself. My body is my own. I get to do what I want. If I want to take my own life, I get to do that. I think that's a strain of liberalism, that I'm in control of my own life. I own myself. And I think that has respectable philosophical pedigree. The other strain, which I guess I would associate with, is I'm not my own. That I inherited life from many ancestors who came before, and I have an obligation to pass it along to those who came after, and that I do not have the right to take my own life. And that if somebody is rushing to a bridge to jump off it, I'm going to do all I can to stop them. It's not your choice. And not only that, but I inherited this massive moral tradition from the West and other parts of the world. I inherited a wonderful concept of citizenship by being born in America. I inherited a sense of reading and a special moral pressure from being born Jewish. I didn't create any of that. It was gifted to me, and my job is to continue and carry it along and to pass it down hopefully a little better than I found it. And so I think these are two different conceptions of how you conceive of a life. I control myself versus I'm just a piece in a long chain, and there are a lot of things about which I do not have control and do not have a choice and should not have a choice.
1: So to give a little bit more context to listeners who may not quite be aware of this exchange, David wrote, I think, a very compelling article in The Atlantic criticizing part of the Canadian practice of assisted suicide, which the factual details are slightly in dispute, but basically go way beyond the kind of context in which we've historically thought about assisted suicide. So here we're not talking exclusively or perhaps even predominantly about people who have a serious cancer diagnosis, which is agreed by doctors to be terminal and who are in great amounts of pain. And so we spare them the last months of suffering. We're talking, for example, about young people who are depressed and who have some minor physical ailment and who have been able to take advantage of this program to Kill themselves. And I think we agree in our disquiet about that. I'm open to certain forms of assisted suicide, but I certainly think that the form which it seems to have taken in Canada is quite deeply disturbing, actually. I guess the question is whether I have to jump between the two positions that you've outlined or whether I can formulate a third position, which is an imminent liberal critique of something like that program of assisted suicide. And you know, I would say that the problem is that liberals have always and should be deeply aware of ways in which institutions can go wrong and create bad incentives and push people into things. And when you create a program in which it is so easy to get signed off on medically-assisted suicide or get turned off on other kinds of medical treatments and so on, which has been in debate recently. And that is the case even for people who may be in the depths of mental illness. There's a real question about whether they're the kinds of agents who are able to make a choice about their fate. And I think that there's good reasons from within the world philosophy that when responsible adults are making decisions that only affect themselves, and which are clearly mentally fit to make, and which they have a requisite foresight to make, we should defer to those. But that is unlikely to be true of somebody who is young and good health and wants to die because they're in the middle of a crippling depression. Because as we know, often people come out of those depressions and end up being very glad that they stayed alive and were able to get through that. So I guess I would say that there would be ways of expressing that deep discomfort that we share with this empirical program that is taking place in Canada from within the liberal tradition. Now, I also agree that it certainly doesn't seem crazy to describe that program as a sort of misapplication of liberal principles. I certainly see how it's plausibly related to, to a form of liberalism. But I guess I would try to formulate your critique in terms that themselves are philosophically liberal.
0: And I would say the reason the Canadian Assisted Suicide Program has germane to us is not because they created the program. That When they created the program, I found it completely acceptable. It was restricted to people at the end of life. They had to be in real suffering. And I have no problem with people, you know, who are in agony. But the problem was when it started spreading and when the slippery slope started, where anybody could say, it's my body, I could get to control what I want, that people and the authorities had no philosophic basis to which to say no. So you had this massive slippery slope, so the program drifted to include all sorts of people who were not envisioned in the original program. And that's not just a political problem, that's a philosophical problem. It's a sign that they've decided to say individual choice is not only a very important value, which it is, but it's the supreme value. And when you get that, you get in a world where people are committing suicide, and they're not just affecting their own lives. Suicide is contagious. They're affecting lives all around them. And they're creating a culture in which the affirmation of life is not a central piece of your whole shared moral order. And to me, that's terribly destructive. That's not an abortion statement. That's just that we should believe that each human life is of infinite value and dignity and is more important than individual choice. And so to me, we should be concerned because they couldn't say no. And we as liberals have to be able to say no. That individual choice is very important to us, but it's not the only thing that's important to us.
1: Thank you for this wonderful conversation. Perhaps just to close, what can liberals do to stand up for the right version of their tradition? How can we defend what is valuable in our political institutions and in our principles while remaining open to critiques of its shortcomings?
0: One of my heroes is a 19th century English journalist named Walter Badgett. And Padgett said, if you want to convince people to your cause, you can write serious tracts and you can give speeches, but the best way is just to enjoy it. And so he was a conservative Tory. He said, just enjoy conservatives and enjoy the land that we love, enjoy the institutions that we love. And so we liberals have a set of institutions where we have fun talking to each other. We get to meet strangers and like get into their lives and introduce them to our lives. And I think one of the, as I say, Liberal democracy is not about politics. It's about a way of being in the world. And so I look at, first of all, I look at, as I said before, your institution and persuasion. I think a lot of people are just living that life and trying to express those ideas. But I also see a lot of people in universities and in companies who are not standing for the pseudo-segregation that is being imposed upon us so we can only hang out with our like, we get to enjoy people we have nothing in common with. And that's just a fun way to be. And so I, I do think it's that the daily act of being socially courageous is of like, I'm usually used to be one of those people who had headphones on in the plane, on the train all the time. Now I'm more prone to talk to people, talk to random people. I talked to a guy who was a big Trump guy though he's switching to DeSantis. And he came here from Russia. He was sweeping floors. He started selling clothing. He had about 60, wives. He showed me his vacation photos where he's in Italy. This guy's like 85, and he's on yachts surrounded by these 20-somethings. I didn't want to ask where these girls came from. And he, you know, he wasn't my cup of tea particularly, but it was fun to talk to him. And thank God he didn't ask where I work, <laughs> or else we would have had some unpleasantness. But that's just a fun way to be a liberal in a society. Just the social encounter, the meeting and sharing our identities. And there's a great line from Parker Palmer, we have to share identities from time to time or else we'll fall for the pseudo image we throw up before the world to make ourselves seem impressive. And if we honestly share who we really are from time to time, it's good for them and it's good for us.
1: David Brooks, thank you so much for coming on the podcast.
0: Totally enjoyed it. Thank you, Yasha.